Hi, this is Jamin Fraser, and you're listening to The Insecurity Project, solving the insecurity problem at a global level. This podcast is a mixture of interviews, coaching sessions, and personal development content. You'll hear me chat with experts, authors, speakers, and individuals who've gone on to do great things in their life as a result of working through their insecurity. You'll hear brave souls being willing to have a live coaching demonstration recorded where they work through their insecurity. And you'll hear 10 Minute Tuesday, which is a chance for me to deliver high-quality personal development content to help you on your journey. I hope you find it useful. Now on to today's show. Hey, folks, it's Jamin. You're on the Insecurity Project. I have the pleasure of interviewing Tracy Second this morning. Now, Tracy's a coach, a speaker, and author. She has a background in physiotherapy, a former Miss Australia, and uh, an inspiring public speaker, video TV presenter, and uh, she's got a wealth of information that she uses with other people, and obviously an incredible backstory to how she got to where she is today. So be really fascinated to get to interview Tracy today and hear how she got to where she is today and in what way she's overcome insecurity. So Tracy, welcome to the show and thanks for your time. Thanks, Jamin. Great to be here. Cool. So as with all guests, diving straight into to your story to understand some of the key moments that have shaped you as a person uh, positively and negatively and affected where you are today, and going all the way back to the start, so I'm fascinated by your childhood and, and particularly the experience of growing up in your home and with your family and the role your parents played in shaping your sense of self, your confidence, your belief, and, uh, yeah, how that affected you as a young girl. Yeah, um, it's really interesting. I grew up in a country town, um, Port Lincoln, and my mum was a nurse and my dad was an entrepreneur. So... I believe that I got a really good balance. So I got the caring, nurturing side for my mum and, you know, the sort of that spirit that you need to be an entrepreneur and take risks Um, and really a contrast with confidence as well. So my dad was very confident, um, very outgoing, gregarious and, you know, a high risk taker. And my mum, on the other hand, was this really nurturing woman who did everything for everybody else but put herself last. And yeah, right. she really, I, I only came to this realisation in the last couple of years, but she was a real people pleaser. So other people's opinions really mattered to her, not only yeah. about herself, but also about us as a family. So she really wanted other people to think that we were a good Christian family and you know, we really had to keep up appearances. So I got mixed messages about confidence from my parents, definitely. Wow, and and who were you more like, your mum or your dad? Well, I was such a combination of both, but I think probably the underlying theme for me was that I'm good enough if dot, dot, dot. So I learned very yeah, right. quickly that I was praised for being pretty. So then there was a lot of pressure to be pretty. And then I realized that I was good at school. So I knew that if I got straight A's, then I would get a pat on the back. And this was, you know, not wrong with my parents. This was really normal to be praised for certain things. But my internal system was I'm only good enough if I'm meeting this criteria. And it was the pressure that I was putting on myself, but it started at a very young age. And it can be typical for number one in the family um, as well, I've experienced. And so 
by the number time one as in you're the firstborn. The firstborn, yeah, yep, the yeah, first child of the family. Right. I see this quite quite frequently. And so by the time I was fifteen, um, and a friend of mine made a comment just in passing that most people would probably shrug off. Um, she mentioned that she thought my ankles were getting fat. <laughs> and <laughs> anybody else, you know, of a completely normal body weight, you know, I'd never had a problem with weight, um, wouldn't really take any notice of something like that. And I just went, oh, my goodness, they are. And that's where my dieting began. And that's when my body criticism began. Um, and that spiralled into an eating disorder by the time I was 18. I went away as an exchange student. And I think you know, that change makes you want to be able to control something. So I controlled food. And so this is really how my lack of self-worth showed up because by then I had body dysmorphia, really. I was looking at myself in the mirror thinking that I wasn't thin enough when I was very, very thin. So, yeah, that's how it showed up for me. And I think that that was very strongly from my mum. And in fact, by complete chance, I found out that my mum had a similar eating disorder in, at a similar age, but it was never talked about back then, and she never hmm. talked to me about it. So, yeah, Amazing. more like my mum for sure. <laughs> well, I, I was really fascinated by something you said there around your ankles, uh, mm. because you know we're storytellers, and and the stories that get told at defining moments in our life are the things that ultimately shape our experience from then on in. So I'm wondering, looking back, how you reflect on that, the ankle story and, uh, you know, what, what you tell yourself about what happened in that moment for you that created the, the pain. How, how long did the eating disorder go on for, by the way, after that moment? Well, I, I was dieting from 15 sort of onwards and I was underweight sort of from 17 to 19 and then I got the weight back to normal but the argument in my head the you know always worrying about whether I was thin enough really lasted until I was about 40 and I think that's the case for a lot of women Um, you know they don't look like they're having an eating disorder because they have a normal body weight but the constant criticism in their own heads about what their body looks like and whether, you know, beating yourself up when you eat something that's not perfectly healthy, you know, not having that natural balance with food, just really controlling it because it all comes from unless I have a perfect body, I'm not good enough. And so when I reflect on the story about my ankles, I think, if I was somebody else, I just would have laughed at that. And when I look back at the body, because, of course, I have photos of myself at that age, you know, it's a fantastic body. I see it completely differently. Um, so it just really demonstrates to me that what we see <clears throat> is not reality. It's our perception of reality. Yeah, for sure. I, I wonder, though, did you blame your friend um, for what happened no. to you? No, not at all. Not at all. Totally innocent from her point of view. She would never know to this day that I had that reaction to what she said. It's it's so amazing you say that because I I think in working with people overcoming insecurity, typically they imagine because of what has happened to me or said to me or done to me, that's why I feel this way about myself. So because that person said something on my ankles when I was this age, then that's what sparked the eating disorder. But, um, you know, what you're reflecting on is the fact that you still had to decide what that meant 
And your internal dialogue when that happened was, oh my goodness, she's right, I do have a problem. So that was the thing you agreeing and you telling yourself the story, that was the thing that kind of catapulted you into this um, fear of gliding and pain. And I think if it wasn't that incident, it would have been something else. It was just a matter of time. Yeah, for sure. I really believe that, yeah, mum had been through it. You know, I'd inherited it to an extent. Um, But also there were these subliminal messages that I must have been getting from mum that I didn't consciously realise. Like I reflected once you know, wisdom comes, you know, with age and you look back and I reflect and my mum would often cook us a beautiful meal and then she'd just stay busy in the kitchen while we all sat at the table and ate it. She was eating it. Yeah, Yeah, and I didn't notice. For all those years I didn't notice. Um, But once I was dealing with the eating disorder myself, I was able to look back and realise that that's what was going on. So she probably battled. In fact, I know she did. She dieted you know, for a wedding um, when she was in her 60s and got down to a really low weight to look great at a wedding. So she lived with it all of her life, really. Amazing. It's it's interesting that you say that you think a lot of women battle with this because that's certainly been my experience in how the insecurity manifests. Um, Health is one of the big areas. And no matter how healthy a woman is, um, they don't feel like they're healthy. And that's the point of pain. So, you know, you're distorted view of your own healthiness was the thing others were saying oh you look fine you look healthy you look fit you look skinny but you're going no it's not enough and this perfectionism driver in the in your inside um by the way have you ever heard perfectionism described as the lack of standards no i haven't Oh, I, that's always stuck with me from, I think, maybe one of the first sessions I did in, in coach training on my own coaching journey back in the day, uh, one of the presenters said that statement uh, and by saying, you know, perfectionists think they've got a really, really high standard, um, but in fact, that's not true. They have no standard. They've never decided on what is good enough. All they know is what they're currently doing is not. So the house is not yeah. clean enough. I don't look pretty enough. I haven't spent enough time with the kids. So they're constantly driven to do more and more and more because they have never decided on what is enough, um, which is a reflection on the fact that they are operating out of a space where they don't know that they're enough, and so that's how it's manifesting. So that was yeah, just, um, it's interesting point. that you... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's such a good point. And really, you know, um, the eating disorder was only one aspect of it because, you know, I remember getting A's and that you didn't even feel um, like congratulating yourself about that. That was just an expectation. So you'd be really yeah. angry if you got an A-, minus, um, but you wouldn't even celebrate the A because yeah, well. you just had to at least get A's. So when your expectations get that high, then you're always looking for the negatives rather than celebrating the positives. So you just become really hard on yourself. Yeah, amazing. Um, okay, so... I'm so fascinated by what happened next. How did you find your way out of this mess and before it consumed you? Because I promise, you know, you and I both know that there are people who never find a way out of this and it ultimately consumes them and produces yeah. madness. So tell me about the stuff that worked for you in finding sanity and uh, letting go of this insecurity. So um, I, I'm really blessed. I actually look back at getting an eating disorder at 17 and say that you know, it was the best thing that could ever happen to me because it led me at a really young age to read books like 
Louise Hay, You Can Heal Your Life. So I yeah. was reading self-help books at the age of 18, um, which was unusual back then. And so I did lots and lots of internal work and I threw myself into business. So I started my first business at 18, um, which was the school jumper business. You know, how all the kids have a jumper with all the names on the back in year 12. We started that. Yeah. And I um, went to university and studied physiotherapy. But there was always the underlying thing. You know, I was always concerned about my body. But on the outside, I was extremely confident. And I guess I really threw myself into what I was good at. And I think that this is a really key point about confidence is that all of us have confidence in some area. So even when we don't think we're enough, there's something yeah. that we're good at where we do feel confident. So yeah. for me, that was business and that was um, study and, you know, intelligence and learning and things like that. So I threw myself into what I was good at, but what I continued to feel insecure about was relationships and other people's opinions of me. So yeah, sure. that that was an online ongoing theme um, all of my life, and a big there was a few big turning points in my life. One of them was meeting my husband um, because I'd always attracted. I realise now a partner who would really confirm that insecurity in me. So a partner who was obsessed with looks. So that would just put the pressure on because, you know, I'd have a boyfriend where yeah. I believed, you know, there was more pressure to look good um, and that sort of thing. And then when I met my my now husband, um, I was Miss Australia at the time. So the last thing I was even thinking about was meeting someone, which, you know, is always the way when you don't yeah. need something. That's when it shows up. Um, and he's Irish and didn't care less that I was Miss Australia. He was just so interested in me and who I was. That was a very big turning point for me, to meet someone that cared about the inside of me. Um, another big turning point, I think, for anybody is having children so that then your attention is some, on somebody other than you. When you're obsessed with yourself, it's really easy to be insecure because you just think about your problems all the time and what you're worried about. And, you know, there's no time for that when you have kids. Um, but the, the biggest turning point and where I really made the shift was when my mum died um, two years ago. Well, what happened? Yeah. With, uh, uh, what happened with your with your shift? Well, it just gave me perspective because when she died, I was telling some girls on a retreat that I just ran over the weekend because I was talking about their fears, and I was saying, you know what? The worst thing that I thought could ever happen to me actually happened to me, which is losing someone that I love very much. Yeah. That's probably what I was most afraid of. And the most amazing thing happens when you actually are faced with the thing that you fear the most, it gives you great perspective on life and it's and it's a turning point. It's actually an opportunity to drop all those fears because you've survived it. You know, yeah. I was very sad, but I was still alive after that worst thing happened. But it really made me realize that I had my priorities all wrong. So I, at the time when my mum died, I was running three businesses. And although I have a husband and three children, I was a workaholic. And this is another thing that you do when you're insecure is you are just trying to reach that next thing that will prove finally that you're good enough yeah, and sure. so 
that's what I was doing. I just had to be the best at everything. And so I just was doing too much. And when she died, I went, I'm not doing this anymore. And so I sold my business that I'd had for 21 years. I walked away from a business that um, I was doing very, very well in, had a really huge team. Um, I'd been doing that for five years and I stepped back from that. Um, And I just had this epiphany that um, I was such a people pleaser my whole life. And I really believe that a people pleaser believes that their value is based on other people's opinions of them. They yeah, do sure. think they think they should because of what other people will think or feel in relation to that. Entirely. And so stepping out of that, you had to then rely on your own opinion rather than others' opinion? Is that what Yeah, so I, yeah, I had to discover what my opinion is. That was the amazing thing is when you go along with other people all your life and then you realise that you're doing that and you stop, I'm like, well, what is my opinion? What do I think about that? Because I keep the peace and just agree with everyone. So now if I'm going to have my own opinion, what is it? And um, one of the first things I did was say, okay, if I'm going to stop doing these things I actually don't want to do because I'm doing them for other people, and it's really important to do things for other people, but you want to do it because you want to do it as well. So when I stopped doing all these other things that I was doing for the wrong reasons, I went, okay, what do I want to do? And it was so interesting to start to think about what I want because I realized that my why was too much tied up in being good enough and not just, okay, if you're good enough right now, what do you want? And I realized that what lights me up the most is when I'm talking to someone and I see a shift in their eyes and I see that they start to realize that they're okay and that they're good enough. Um, And that's how my coaching business started. Um, And I started teaching people the transformation from people pleaser to soul pleaser because that's how I would describe my transformation. I have discovered who I really am um, and I am being that person and showing up as that person and doing what I want to do, following my calling, I believe. Yeah, amazing and so powerful when people own their value and worth and become their own source of wisdom and understand that their opinion matters more about, more than others. It, it, it changes everything. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, when I'm so vulnerable, you know, just coming back from this retreat, I am just completely myself, warts and all. You know, I'm not trying to be anyone. And as a coach, sometimes, you know, coaches may think that you have to be this perfect person because you're helping others to improve. But in fact, I've found it's the opposite. Um, My tribe loves the fact that I am warts and all who I am. Um, and it allows them to show up and be who they are um, and be really vulnerable. Yeah, wonderful. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, so, so are there, sorry, are there practices, rituals, uh, things that you commit to regularly as a way of staying in that beautiful space which you've just described about being a soul pleaser rather than a people pleaser? 
Yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest changes I made was um, properly committing to meditation. So I'd experimented with meditation over the years and I remember going to a chanting retreat in Byron Bay back when my kids were quite young, so about 12 years ago. And I went away for the weekend and I absolutely loved it. And I came back and I used to sit in my car in the garage um, because I couldn't wake the kids up. So I'd be chanting in the car <laughs> so that I didn't wake anyone up. But when it got really cold, <clears throat> that got a little impractical because I didn't yes. want to start the car. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, it waned. But I've realized that if you go within on a regular basis and just quiet your mind, because a lot of our mind chatter of the left side of the brain is our analysis brain and so it's often very critical not only of ourselves but of our lives and of other people and when you quiet your mind you actually go into the heart space and you start to allow your true self to emerge and so I, I meditate every day my goal is actually to meditate twice a day so all going well that's what I do 20 minutes in the morning yep. and and 20 minutes in the afternoon. I practice gratitude um, every single day. I've always walked, um, but I've also now started to walk in silence because um, quite often as a high achiever, I'd be listening to a podcast while I'm walking, educating myself. And and I find that that connection with nature in silence um, is another way to connect to stillness. And when you connect to stillness, I believe you're connecting to, I call it the soul, but for people that don't resonate with the word soul, you can also say um, that pure potentiality where everything is created. And this just allows my life to flow. You know, I find it very easy to create new content. I just know exactly what to say when I'm talking to a client and none of that feels like it's coming from my intellect or me trying to make it happen. It just flows because I'm connected to that pure yeah. potentiality that we all have access to. Yeah, how wonderful. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Louise Hay was a key book for you early on. Have there been other books which you highly recommend for people trying to process this stuff in their own life? Yeah, absolutely. My big three favourites would be Rebecca Campbell, Light is the New Black, um, Neil Donald Walsh, When Everything Changes, Change Everything, and Rhonda Byrne, The Power. They're my three absolute favourites. Okay, fantastic. I'll make sure those are in the show notes. It sound like fantastic books. I haven't read any of those. Oh, it's always yeah, exciting wonderful. when I get to hear books that I've never heard of before. Yeah, yeah, they're really good, really good. And um, they really all resonate with that message that everything you want is inside of you. And when you realize that, it's just a relief. Like I remember just being so relieved to realize that I don't need anything because, mm. you know, that's what we're doing when we think we're not good enough is we're trying to fill up that gap where yeah, we're entirely. not enough. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, so much gold you've packed in. Is there anything that we feel like we've missed? Anything else that you'd like to say to the listeners? Any parting thoughts um, that we're going to help them do this work? Yeah, I think that the biggest thing, because a lot of people, you know, grapple with this whole idea of I am enough and they just can intellectually embrace it but not fully understand it in the level that it shifts them. 
And I think that it's important to study the truth about who you are and to not identify with your personality, you know, the role that you play, the way yeah. that you look and your behaviours, but instead really study the truth about the fact that we are all spiritual beings having a human experience. And when you tap into that, you can have this sense of peace and you can bring yourself back to that no matter what's going on outside of you. And that's how you have this opportunity to experience peace and calm regardless of the world around you and what's going on. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, thank you so much. Just some incredible insights. and I know people are going to be benefiting from this. So where can people find you? Where, whereabouts do you hang out online at the easiest place? Yeah, the best place probably to find me is I have a group, especially for women, called the Soul Pleaser Group. So it's just um, on Facebook and it's called Soul Pleaser. Um, so there's a page and you can find the group that way as well, which is also called Soul Pleaser. And I have lots of videos on there, lots of free content so that you can start to get to know my work if you're interested. Wonderful. Well, you're doing an amazing job and it's always so wonderful. It's part of the Insecurity Project to collaborate with people who are doing this work in the world and helping people deal with this fear of not being good enough because it's a problem that demands a clear and intelligent and complete solution. So really acknowledge your work and I'm grateful for you sharing your insights and your journey with us today. So thanks so much. Thank you, Jamin. And, and same to you. I really appreciate the work that you're doing and I appreciate that you collaborate and promote other people um, who are in this space as well. So thank you for the work you're doing, Jamin. Yeah, my pleasure. We'll leave the call there. You've been listening to The Insecurity Project. If you're interested in finding out more about dealing with your own insecurity, check out the 30-day online Overcoming Insecurity Bootcamp. It combines high-quality frameworks with one-on-one -on -one coaching to help you eradicate the fear of not being good enough and give yourself permission to really flourish in life. For more information, check out jamonfraser.com.